This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Our guest today is biologist Christina Mitchell from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and the Delta Windbirds. She's been birding the Mississippi Delta region and beyond since 2002 and has monitored birds on public and private lands for numerous governmental and non-governmental organizations. Today we're going to talk about bird banding, hummingbirds, and some of the other birds found around the state. Dr. Major is on the line, ready for your pet questions. Libby always likes to discuss your recent encounters with nature. Email animals at mpbonline.org. And a reminder, if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursdays, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So, um, I think Libby is joining us via Skype this morning. Libby, are you with us today? I am. Very good. I'm here. Uh, what have you been seeing in your yard lately? Oh, gosh. I've had a, a wonderful morning, in fact. I just had a male and female gross beak on the feeder, and um, I've seen the female prothonotary has shown up. I don't know if I, I think I talked about that last week. Had a couple of males calling and singing and so uh, yesterday, a female came, and I've seen them both together today looking at houses. So hopefully they'll settle down somewhere. And had bluebirds mating, let's see, day before yesterday. And uh, they're going in and out of the house this morning. So I'm assuming that they've settled on their house. And uh, gosh, just really uh, indigo buntings are back, so that's great. And I'm still on the look for Oreos. We spent three, I guess, three and a half days down off an island this past week. Mm-hmm. So um, got to be outside a whole lot and saw some incredible birds down there. So really had a lot of fun. Oh, and I've got 12 hummingbirds on the feeder right now wow. that I can see and had a little excitement. You know, Paul had an up close with the hummingbird when the hummingbird got stuck in the screen last week. Well, this morning he walked out to his truck and uh, a little female hummingbird flew in the truck and had, you know, some kind of hysterical moments while she was trying to get out and didn't see him as help, but finally he was able to grab her quick and release her. So hopefully she's one of the ones on the feeder right now getting a drink and calming down. That was pretty upsetting for her. Um, I don't know if we've ever asked this on the air before, but um, do the birds, the hummingbirds, is it a very orderly cue at the at the feeder? Do they fight each other for the best spot? How do they interact with each other? They, it is contentious constantly i spread feeders out to try to cut down on that you know rarely there were a couple times yesterday when i noticed there were two and three feeding on 
two different feeders at the same time peacefully. And that I think that meant they were really tired and hungry when they got here, probably straight from migrating, because usually they like to get into a little bit, especially the males. They, you know, even if there's plenty of room for everybody to eat, they're going to go over and mess with somebody, tip him off the feeder a little <laughs> bit, that kind of thing, showing off. And uh, the males, there's a... Um, a really neat ritual they do for mating and some of the males seem to be doing that for females but they will also do parts of that same kind of ritual as an aggression to other males so i saw some of that too they're um they're feisty little guys (laughs) and girls as always dr Uh, mager oh oh, go ahead libby oh just uh, i've got one thing kind of important from the Museum of Natural Science this morning. Uh, They want us all to know that Moonlight Music and Meteors, which is an event that the park, LaFleur's Bluff Park, and the Jackson Symphony, and the Astronomy Club, and the museum. Is that not an unusual pairing? (laughs) I, I like that. But about once a year, they all do something together. And this Moonlight Music and Meteors was going to be an outside event with outdoor music and um, telescopes for Friday night. But the weather is just not going to cooperate. So they've rescheduled that for May the 19th. And there's still time to buy tickets because of that. And then uh, this week, well, no, a couple of weekends away now, the first weekend of May, May the 5th, there's going to be an owl prowl in the evening that you can buy tickets for. The MOS, the um, Mississippi Ornithological Society, and I think Christina may mention them too. She's on the board of the MOS, I believe. I know she's active in the meetings. And uh, the meeting's going to be at the museum Friday, Saturday, and Sunday although we won't be inside very often we'll be outside birding friday night we will be there at the owl prowl if you if you sign up for mos you can be too and uh, marine education day then is saturday may the 6th so all that happens in a couple weeks uh what about uh, do you know if there's going to be the annual sort of uh, firefly uh extravaganza behind the uh um craft center in ridgeland yes there is it's definitely going to be on and let's see it's all online and they are starting to sell tickets it's going to be pretty much like last time but they've added at least one day to it and let me look and be positive i've got my date right um let's see yeah the 19th I think it actually starts on the the night of the 18th, 19th, 20, and 21 at the Mississippi Craftsman's Guild. So it'll be at the Craft Center there in, um, oh gosh, what's that on? Rice Road? Mm -hmm. Right off the trace. Yep. Yeah. And I went last year, would recommend it. It's very, if you, especially if you've never seen the fireflies that we've talked about on the air, the sinks and all the different kinds of ones. It's very interesting to, to uh, interact with them, and they do a good job of having a guide with you there to kind of help you understand what it is that you're, you're seeing. So I would certainly recommend that for folks who've uh, never experienced that before. So Yeah, and they're planning to also do an event at Waldoxy this year. So I'm hoping I'll be up there, too. And um, 
the they're kind of in the process of trying to set the dates, which, Kevin, we all of our listeners in South Mississippi, particularly down on the coast, should be looking for the synchronous fireflies. They uh, have started blinking in Covington, Louisiana. So that means mm-hmm. they should, you know, the it's not that some people, I think, have misunderstood the way I talk about it, and I may not be explaining very good. It's not that they migrate north. It's that they emerge like in a, a, a time schedule further north as it gets warmer up the state. So the fireflies have emerged in Covington, which means that the fireflies soon thereafter should be um, emerging in South Mississippi. So uh, people may already be seeing them. And if they have, I would love for them to either email us or call us and let us know. We're usually about three weeks behind Covington with ours emerging. So um, we're looking forward to it pretty soon. All right. As I mentioned, Dr. Major joins us from his uh, clinic in Jackson. So good morning, Dr. Major. Here's an interesting email question that we got. And it says, why is a dog's lifespan so much shorter than a human's? And this, I think, goes back to that, I don't know if it's a urban myth, old wives' tale or whatever, the seven years, seven dog years to every one human year. So if you would, maybe tell us a little bit about the difference between the lifespan between dogs and humans. You know, that's a great question. And, of course, I've often thought that, you know, if, if our dogs and cats could live out their life the same as we do, it might be a good thing, it might not. But uh, a lot of this seven-year thing, that's kind of an average. Uh, in other words, a 10-year-old dog uh, may or may not be equivalent to a 70-year-old person. Uh, a lot of it has to do with the breed as well. The larger breeds tend to age more quickly uh, than some of the smaller breeds. It's not unusual to see. Uh, Chihuahuas, Yorkies, Poodles, some of these small breeds live to be 17 to 20 years old. Well, if that was true, at 20 and 7, you'd have 140 years. So, (laughs) that you know, it has a lot to do with the size of the breed. There's some breeds that are definitely longer-lived. I don't want to get into too many specifics, but boxers, for example, uh, they are probably in the 10 to 12-year range at best, uh, and other large dogs, uh, mastiffs, uh, big dogs like that, probably in the 10 to 12-year range. And there are some exceptions to that rule, but no, uh, I can't explain why dogs don't live as long as humans. It's just the way they are, and uh, that's the way they were designed. So it's, it's a more advanced life or a, a quicker life cycle than humans are, which, you know, uh, what about cats? Do they have a similar kind of faster aging process? Yes, they do, but they tend, and in general, a cat that's well cared for and has no disease processes, there's no reason that cats can't live to be 20 years, uh, 20 years of age. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, they possibly, as a whole, uh, well cared for, uh, live a little bit longer than the average dog. But as we would uh, probably guess uh, with cats being outdoors and things, I would imagine there are a lot of cats that, uh, for whatever reason, you know, run over, that kind of thing, don't don't make it as long because um, right. they tend to be more roaming than uh, dogs do, I guess. Well, I, I don't know about the roaming, but uh, the old adage, uh, curiosity killed the cat, is probably <laughs> true uh, in certain extents. And uh, some cats have good road sense, for example. Some cats... 
live on one side of the street and never cross to the other side. But in general, cat's life outside is shorter than an inside cat. Uh, There's another part to this email, which is another interesting question we will get to in just a minute. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. If you want to join our conversation, send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. And part two of the email we discussed in the first part of the show asks, um, how deep in the ground and how long underground can an ant colony grow? Uh, If you run over an ant pile with a lawnmower, does it make the colony grow or spread it out in wider sections underground? So, Dr. Major, you're an insect guy. Um, Do we know how deep in the ground uh, some ant colonies can get? That's a great question, too. Uh, You know, frankly, it depends on the ant, the species of ant. But the fire ants, for example, maybe the ones that they're talking about. And certainly, uh, they can go fairly deep. Uh, Libby could probably help me with this, but I suspect having seen some casts made Mm -hmm. probably... uh, probably no deeper than two feet. Uh, they can make a considerable mound. And uh, as far as running over the more, probably you're angering the ants more than anything else. Uh, they will build that mound back up very quickly. Yeah, when, when that happens, you can certainly see that it creates a, quite a bit of consternation and the ants are just going every which way, which, you know, makes sense if your house is suddenly... Ripped apart, you would be a little bit concerned too. Libby, any thoughts any uh, on on ants and and their their um, their nests, their colonies? Well, you guys gave me a little time to look it up. So if we can trust what I googled, Troy was right on the mark. It says the deepest they can go is about three feet usually. So that might there may be of course what, exceptions to every rule. So it says between one and three feet is usually where the mound is, but the female is the the queen, mm-hmm. you know, the the kingpin there. She is um, usually not that deep. I was wondering because my first thought was, ah, oh, it's the queen down at the very bottom, and it says no, she's just a few inches below the ground. So you know, I guess that's it is possible you could. I've heard people say, you know, I wanted to just dig it up. But I do think that they probably, if you pulled the shovel out and moved them, they would probably just uh, go right back to digging it again. They're pretty industrious, which is why they're so troublesome for us. But um, I've heard that thing about spreading them out. And from what I can tell, it, it just, like Tori says again, it irritates them. And, um, but it doesn't make them spread any more than they would have spread before, but it might make them more anxious to bite somebody so the next person that walked by might, you know, be more likely to get stung or bit. And they can do both. They can sting you and bite you. Hmm. Well, also, I would guess, too, the, the queen is the queen. And so depending, I mean, if she doesn't get tossed halfway across the yard, I would think the natural in, inclination would be to let's just repair this a colony that we've already established because our leader is is still with us. Does that make sense? That does make sense. Yeah, and if um, you know, they have this great sense of smell and all kinds of pheromones. So, if you were able to find that queen and sling her away, a few feet away, I'm thinking those workers may find her and go get her. Yeah, interesting. They're, um, yeah, they're they're just. It, 
it's amazing, and I guess I would have more respect for them if I didn't dislike them. So it's one of the few <laughs> creatures that I do uh, not want around. And it's introduced, so I think I have, um, you know, I'm in my rights there <laughs> if to you say want. I want to get rid of them. But I don't want to get rid of them at all costs, I guess. Let's put it that way. All right. You don't want to over-poison or do something terrible to your yard, just get rid of the ferns, because I certainly want all my other insects, so um, I'm willing to put up with them if I have to. All righty, let's uh, go to the phone lines here for just a minute. Looks like we'll start off with a pet question for Dr. Major, coming from Carol, who lives in seminary. Good morning, Carol. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Good morning, sir. Yes, I have, um, I'm a cat lover, and I love cats, and I've had cats all my life, and they've all been neutered or spayed, but last year someone put out two pregnant cats at my house. They both had four kittens, and of course I've got pregnant cats now. Now, I've checked with the uh, Humane Societies, uh, and they want an outrageous amount for one cat, unless I misunderstood them, want to bring an, one animal to... Um, them was $150. I can, I'm retired. I cannot afford any of this. The cat food has gone up so much that they like. And um, do you know any way or anyone that can help me place these cats somewhere? I guess the first question is where do you live? I live at uh, Seminary, a Collins. Right. I would suggest with these cats, you're talking about having them fixed or spayed or neutered and taking them back home, correct? Some of them, yes. I've got 14. Oh, that's a little much for me. Sure. Uh, I would suggest this. Uh, I don't have the number, but uh, there is a group called Big Fix here in, uh, I think it's in Rankin County, but uh, certainly you could get that number and give them a call and see what they would charge you. It'd be much less than $150, okay? Uh, well, what what is the name again? Big Fix. All right. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you. Could try that, and hopefully you could help. they could help you, Okay. All right, uh, Carol, thanks for your call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Looks like we got a couple of bird questions on the line, so this is a good time to inter- introduce our guest for the day is biologist Christina Mitchell from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and Delta Windbirds. So, Christina, thanks for joining us on the show. If you would, maybe tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in studying birds. Hi, yes, of course. Good morning. Um I, uh, well, when I was in my, when I graduated high school, I went to college and I was interested in, in wildlife. Um, I kind of got that from just going on family vacations and going to national parks and thinking, hey, I want to work in one of these places one day. So um, I studied, I studied wildlife at Arkansas State University. And honestly, I wasn't, birds were not my first choice. <laughs> um, I was, I was very interested in, in wolves. And um, I wanted to be a famous wolf biologist one day. Um, my major professor there, um, he had actually worked with the reintroduction of Mexican gray wolves in the Southwest. But in, in, in what he really did was birds. He was an ornithologist. Um, he had a lot of graduate students and a lot of projects going on. And every field trip we took was like, 
looking at birds and whether or not we wanted it, you know, we were going to learn our birds. And so um, I ended up really getting into it and, um, you know, spent a lot of time uh, participating in, in some of the graduate students' research. And, um, and after college, um, I just kept it going. I took a lot of um, jobs around the country working with different uh, types of birds, mainly songbird research. Um, and ended up back at grad school at Mississippi State and continued, continued studying birds there under Dr. Sam Riffle. Um, and uh, now I'm in North Mississippi and keeping it going. So um, I've been able to really kind of grow my network of like bird buddies um, through places that I've worked. But um, as y'all mentioned earlier, I'm part of the Mississippi Ornithological Society and Delta Wind Birds. I previously worked at Strawberry Plains Audubon Center in Holly Springs, Mississippi. And so while I was there, I got to be connected with a lot more bird things around the state. So it's been a, it's been a really good ride so far. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're going to be visiting this hour with our guest biologist, Christina Mitchell. Got a couple of bird-related questions on the line. So let's see, uh, going back to the phone lines, starting again in Meridian, Virginia has called in today. Good morning, Virginia. You're on the air with us, so go ahead. Uh, good morning. Yes, I have a question about bluebirds. I have had several bluebirds at the feeder and the bird bath, and I'm not sure what kind of bluebird it is. One of them had a yellow beak. Does that mean it's a gross beak, or is it an indigo bunting, or a bluebird? Oh, interesting. Okay, okay. So so different species of, of songbirds that are blue. Um, mm-hmm. is this a, is this happened happened recently? Like or yes, in general. Yes, like yesterday and the day before, and it usually happens this time of year every year. And I'm never quite sure oh. which bird it is. Okay, and where are you calling from again? Meridian, right in the middle of the state, next to the Alabama line. Okay, I know, I know where Meridian is. Yeah, okay. so this time this time of year, you can expect a lot of migratory birds to be coming through. Um, I know from uh, looking on our Mississippi bird listserv um, that we've had some, definitely some migrants coming up through the southern and central parts of the state and now even coming up into the northern parts. But um, I, with, blue, with a blue bird at your bird bath and your bird feeder, if it's eating seeds, it's, it could be an indigo bunting. Um, okay. They're a very, very pretty blue. The males are very pretty blue mm-hmm. solid blue birds um especially if they're two or two years or older that's when they really get their beautiful plumage the females are sort of a dull brown um yeah these, and, these are very blue and the wings seem to be a little darker blue okay um well that's a good that's a good pro, uh, possibility potentially it could be a blue growth beak as well which is both of those species are related to the to the northern cardinal which is typically a pretty show, showy family of birds. Like the males are always really gorgeous and the females are kind of dull colored, um, but beautiful in their own way. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, I would look up those two species and, and online or in a, in a field guide and, and see if that's what you got. All right. Now, my next question is about the hummingbirds. I have not put my feeder out yet, thinking with the cold snaps that keep coming and going, it would not be the uh-huh. time to do that, but am I mistaken about that? Oh no, they're here. <laughs> no, no, oh, you okay? You, whether whether or not um, it you know it gets uh, really cold at this point, most most of our hummingbird most of our hummingbirds are they've hit the coast already, 
Um, they're starting to move up, and they're looking for food. So if uh, if you're waiting, well, yeah, just go ahead and put them out because um, because they'll be grateful. So yeah, and if it gets cold, then then they'll be even more grateful that because they're already here, and then you have food provided for them. All right, Virginia, thanks for your call this morning. Let's stay on the phone lines here. Next, uh, off to Kosciuszko we go. TJ has called in today. Good morning, TJ. Go ahead. You're on the air. Yeah, good morning. I I noticed a a bird at my – I got a little small lake, and it's got a pavilion out there with a roof on it, and there's a bird out there. I couldn't identify it. I thought it was a little buzzard, but I took my wife down there, and she said it's a Muscovy duck. You ever heard of that? Yes, yes. Those are uh, those are actually introduced. Uh, they're they're native to South America. Um, down there, I think they actually call them Barbary ducks, and they are a delicacy. Apparently, they're very delicious. I've never eaten one. Um, but yeah, a lot of people will put them uh, in in lakes and ponds um, in in rural areas or even suburbs. Um, and so, yeah, they're they're not the most attract. Okay, so I can see how they're you'd be confusing it with a buzzer because they have this really strange red growth on top of their bill that kind of looks like you know um, buzzardy, I guess. <laughs> but and they are large birds. But uh, yeah, they're 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 fairly common, and and uh, that that might be what you're looking at. Yeah, my wife said that they were sacred to the Indians. And uh, I don't know where he he just showed up. It's just one of them down there. Be real friendly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They they get pretty acclimated to being around people quickly. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, TJ, thanks for calling in. Kevin Farrell here on MPB Think Radio with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. It's Creature Comforts, and our guest for today is Christina Mitchell from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. If you missed any of today's show, you can always subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Or if you have the MPB Public Media app, you can listen to all the local MPB Think Radio programs on your schedule. Email animals at mpbonline.org. Or as we've mentioned, use the new Talk to Us feature that uh, is found in the MPB Public Media app. So we uh, want to talk to our guest, uh, Christina, about bird banding. But we do have another caller on the line. So we say good morning this time to Ela in Memphis. Good morning. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I have two things. First of all, Kevin, I love your pun of the day. Thank and you. I it on Facebook <laughs> and everybody off, so it's a wonderful thing. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. And um, also, so I have this really weird thing. So a long, long, long time ago, I found these little glass bluebirds, and they were like pawned off as bluebirds of happiness and joy. And I was just wondering, what is the origin of that story? Um, I like to give it to my friends that happen to be having maybe a down time in their lives or whatever. I just want to have a better idea of what it means, if possible. Christina, any idea where that phrase came from, the bluebird? Is that a, is that a type of bird? You know, so I think uh, I, I literally just Googled this as she was speaking. Um, I have heard of this uh, bluebird of happiness. It's like, and I've seen them before. They're like these little uh, glass sculptures of bluebirds, and they're very pretty. Um, I think that um, that basically what I'm reading here is that the bluebird is the harbinger of happiness found in many cultures. Um, and obviously, you can read about it online. I didn't know that until until you um, until you brought it up. So um, I can't give you any more information on it. But um, that's a 
I think I think your friend would really appreciate that gift. That sounds like a really nice thing to give someone. All right, Eva. Well, thank- I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Thanks for your call and thanks for the kind words. I will keep punning through the afternoon for all of the listeners of MPB Think Radio. So we are on Creature Comforts today visiting with biologist Christina Mitchell. Uh, Let's, uh, Christina, talk a little bit about bird (laughs) banding. If you could give us some examples of the knowledge uh, that can be gained from banding birds. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, bird banding has been around for a very long time. Um, it's actually started back in the 16th century, and, and back then people were just more interested in not losing their messenger birds, um, whether they were pigeons or falcons or whatever. Um, in the 20th century, bird banding came to um, the United States, uh, North America, and, um, and at first it was just to really understand the migrations and survival of birds, and actually, to this day, that is one of the biggest drivers of why we ban the birds. Um, ban- bird banding picked up a lot um, around the 1950s when there were more uh, inventions of, 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 of specific nets that we call mist nets um, used to capture birds. It made it easier to capture them, and then at that point, um, a lot more data was able to be collected on many types of birds that. Um, spend time in in North America, whether it's breeding or wintering or just migrating through. Um, Today, our more modern, more modern times, we have really been able to kind of build up the type of data we collect even more. Um, uh, A lot of disease research is is done through bird banding, uh, whether it's taking a little blood from birds um, or uh, ticks, feather mites, um, parasites like that. Um, <clears throat> also, um, <clears throat> even, okay, so, so there's, with bird banding, typically, um, you're going to be putting a bird, a band on a bird that has a specific identifier on it, and it's just a series of numbers that are special to that bird. But if you're wanting to study more about habitat usage, you may want to put additional bands on the bird. And so um, we call these color bands. They kind of look like those little plastic pop beads that you use to iron and make little patterns of things. Like, those were big back in the 90s. But anyway, they're very, very light, just like the, um, the aluminum bands. And that way you do not have to recapture birds in order to see how they are using specific habitats. This type of uh, research is really important for conservation um, to measure the impacts of, of uh, things on the environment. Um, or if perhaps maybe you're trying to improve certain areas, how birds are reacting to that. Um, so, yeah, those are just, just some of the ways that uh, bird banding is used. I think you mentioned mist netting. If you would tell us about, uh, about that. So the mist nets that we use um, for catching songbirds and other smaller birds like that or smaller raptors are the same kind of mist nets that are used to catch capture bats. I think y'all have had um, people on the show talking about that, but basically they're just very thin nylon uh, nets that are essentially supposed to be invisible to the birds. Um, the the ones that we typically use are 12 meters long, four meters high, and they've got these little pockets that run all the way across them um, that are additionally in, invisible. So when birds are flying, they they hit the net and they fall down into one of these pockets. And so um, 
in a, at a migration bird banding station or, or a breeding, which is what I've worked at mainly, um, at regular intervals, usually every 15 minutes, every 30 minutes, we go check and um, gently remove the birds from the net. What about uh, banding a, a larger bird, a raptor type, maybe a hawk or an eagle? It sounds like that might be a little more adventurous. <laughs> it certainly is. Um, raptors are, are super smart, and they've got excellent vision, so they're always watching you. Um, <laughs> so it's you have to be a step ahead of them um, in order to capture them. I personally um, have only banded small raptors, but I, I well, I take that back. Um, I'll tell you one story. Uh, when, when I was assisting a graduate student in Arkansas, she was capturing red-shouldered hawks, which is a very common uh, forest hawk that we have here year-round. Um, and uh, there, she was capturing them near their nest to study. It was, it was a siblicide research. And um, typically when you try to catch raptors, you have to have some sort of lure because they're not just going to fly into a, a trap. And so we had a taxidermy great horned owl. It was a roadkill owl. And we had turned it into a robotic owl. Hmm. And so we, with a controller, we could control its head movement. And um, we played the owl song near a net, and the hawk flew right in and just tore the head right off of that owl. <laughs> um, and, and it hit the net. And we were able to um, to process it then and then release it. So, um, yeah, typically you're either using um, a, a decoy like that or maybe uh, a live animal, whether it's like a rodent or a bird. But those are typically enclosed in some sort of protective um, case or something, a wire cage, so, so they can't get injured. Um, one thing that is really cool is out west, um, where they have bigger raptors like California condors and golden eagles. Um, <clears throat> I worked on a project where we had to capture golden eagles for research. And what they did was they dug a pit down in the ground, and someone actually got into that pit. The pit was covered with, like, loose material, small sticks, and and a carcass was placed on top of it, a deer carcass. And um, the eagle flew in, landed on the carcass, and they grabbed the eagle. So that sounds really terrifying to me, but that is how they do capture eagles and condors in the West. Yeah. So. That uh, sounds like the bird banding equivalent of the noodling where you reach your uh, hand into a box and, and try to grab a catfish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't want one of those towels going through your, through your arm either. No way. So uh, we've mentioned a couple times that you have worked with uh, Delta Windbirds. If you would tell us about uh, your working with them and, and remind us of uh, what the Delta Windbirds organization is all about. Yeah, so, so um, primarily Delta Windbirds partners with um, farmers uh, in the Mississippi Delta who will seasonally flood their fields to provide shorebird habitat during critical times of migration. So... Um, Mainly, we're looking at the fall, winter time. Um, so, um, we have a few primary farmers we're working with right now. And uh, Jason Huxma, who's the president, he's got a graduate student who's been doing surveys of these areas to assess the usage of shorebirds on these lands. And to further that research, we have begun capturing the shorebirds and putting geolocators on them. So um, there's a network of towers called MODIS towers or CTT towers, but 
typically people refer to them as modus towers that are located around the world. I think there's, there's over 900 now. Um, and we have one of them located near our farm uh, in the Delta. And um, these, these towers can pick up the tags that we're putting on these birds. And so a lot of researchers that capture birds and ban them are, are now putting these types of tags on them because it gives you such good information about not only where they're migrating, but also just general habitat usage. So anytime you implement a conservation practice like this, you want to make sure it's actually having the effect that you want it to have. So we just started doing the geolocators last fall, and already we know um, if the birds are staying overnight, how many weeks they're actually staying at these areas before they take off. And then, actually, I think back in December we had a detection. I think Jason might have said this on your earlier show, but of a bird down in um, Paraguay or Uruguay um, that had migrated down down to that area. So we we haven't tagged a lot of birds yet, but we're already getting a lot of data. So it, it's it's really exciting. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Fowler here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. Our guest uh, today is Christina Mitchell from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and we have been talking about birds. So, Christina, let's talk a little bit about uh, the ruby-throated hummingbird. Um, How far do these birds migrate? Oh, yeah, they they migrate a long way, especially for being so tiny. I mean, um, hummingbirds, I used to tell this to kids when I worked at the Audubon Center and actually learned it from a friend, but, but hummingbirds weigh about one penny. So when they, that's about the, 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 the mass, and um, when they migrate, they double their weight. So I used to give the kids like two pennies. Like this is, so it's, they have to get a lot of energy reserves in order to make the flight. Their migration over the Gulf is around 500 miles, wow. and they typically cover that in about one day. Wow. So they're flying non, nonstop for almost 24 hours. Mm-hmm. And then when they get there, they've lost all that additional weight that they've gained. And so it's not uncommon to hear, you know, stories from people that work offshore, whether it's like oil rigs or fishermen that say, you know, hummingbirds and other migratory birds land on our ships because, you know, they get tired and they see something and then they come down for a rest. So it's pretty, pretty crazy. So uh, as we've heard, this is the time of year when people would start seeing them show up in their in their backyards. And a couple of things about that. First of all, <clears throat> we've talked on the show before is that the the sugar water stuff is good for them, but they really prefer, you know, uh, native plants. So what are some native plants or some things that you might put in your yard that would attract hummingbirds and help them on their stay here? Yeah. So, you know, we've had really good luck up here in North Mississippi with um, the native honeysuckle. Um, and it's a really pretty plant. Uh, right, I, We planted it a few years ago here in our yard and it's already kind of taken over. And it's nice because it, it blooms right you know, in early spring when the hummingbirds are showing up. Um, and it has a really pretty red flower. So it's, it's similar to the Japanese honeysuckle. It's just got a red flower instead of a yellow flower. And it's definitely better for uh, the environment to plant, plant natives. Um, another vine that they really like is the trumpet creeper vine. Um, we, we don't have that in our yard yet, but I'm, I'm going to put it there. Um, I know that I've seen seen them visiting a lot um that that one i think flowers a little later in the in the season so it's nice to kind of have something you know that will flower at different times of the year to provide to provide uh food for them um 
as far as uh, wildflowers go, um, we have Turk's cap. Um, I don't know what other name. I think that's just what it's called, T-U-R-K, apostrophe S, cap, um, in our yard, and the, the hummingbirds love it. It flowers later in the summer, fall. So typically, the, like, the central longitudes of Mississippi, um, like I used to live in Starkville, and then I was up in Holly Springs, they get a lot of migratory birds, hummingbirds. I mean, compared to where, you know, other parts of Mississippi, like where I am now. But um, but if you have flowering plants that flower later in the in the summer, fall, that's great because we have a lot more migrants that are coming through at that time of year and than we do during the spring, summer. You know, so it's uh, those are those are the recommendations. I have others in my head like bee balm and lobelia, but those are the ones that I know of specifically that that do well. And and so once they get here in the spring, they stay through the summer. Oh, uh, no, no, no. There's some, some of them will just keep on moving north. Um, there, some will stay, um, and, and others will continue north. So hummingbirds breed all the way up to Canada and, uh, across much of the east. And, um, and we, they will start, will breeding, they breed all the way down to the coast too. So they have a very large breeding range. Um, <clears throat> uh, what was I going to say? Oh, so some hummingbirds will winter in the United States, um, not very many. I think there's pockets around Florida or North Carolina, and occasional birds will be seen elsewhere, but, but most of them, the majority of them, make the, make the flight back to uh, Central South America. Mm-hmm. So we're sort of a stopping point along the way of the journey both ways? Both ways. Mm-hmm. Right. Correct. <clears throat> and I'm sure after the Gulf of Mexico, they like seeing some land and trees and things where they can uh, rest up if <laughs> if they need to. <clears throat> it's it's probably probably the most beautiful vision of them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's a, a big. Whew. Uh, <laughs> we've got a caller on the line, uh, so let's say good morning to Brenda, who's called in from Lumberton. Brenda, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Couple of things. Um, my fireflies are here. They, I noticed last night, they started letting off their little light, and uh, I'm in Lumberton, so they're here already, and uh, I noticed my bats are out in force, and so are the mosquitoes, and on the hummingbirds, I had a hummingbird fly onto my she porch, which is screened in, and she was just horrified, or it was just horrified, so I tried to catch it, and it it got more horrified. So finally, I got it in my hand, and it was like I was holding nothing. And right. it was just, it was so wonderful to hold it. But I immediately took her off the porch, you know, and, and turned her loose, or it loose. Well, now, every morning when I'm on my back porch, where my hummingbird feeders actually are, here it comes. <laughs> And it's like it's saying, hey, I remember you, you know, good morning. (laughs) Wow. Because she won't approach him, but it approaches me. And Mm -hmm. it is the most beautiful little green bird I have ever seen. Is that common? Is Is it common for hummingbirds too? Well, I haven't heard a story quite like yours before, but, um, 
I have heard it with other types of species that remember. Um, so it doesn't surprise me, doesn't surprise me too much. And I, th- I think that's a wonderful story. All right, uh, Brenda, we appreciate your call. We've got about a minute left. Christina, uh, are there other types of hummingbirds that are that we would find here in Mississippi other than the ruby-throated thro- hummingbirds? There are. Um, so our, our ruby throats will start taking off, you know, September, October, moving moving back south. Um, there, there are western species of hummingbirds that will come over to the east uh, during the fall winter. And most commonly, we have the rufous hummingbird showing up. Now, they're, they're only going to show up at your house if you have a hummingbird feeder out because, you know, it's cold and they need food. And um, if you're going to put a hummingbird feeder out during the winter, you have to keep it maintained, which means you've got to keep a heat lamp on it when it gets cold so it does, the, the sugar water doesn't freeze. Um, so, yeah, some people really want those western hummingbirds, and so they will put out feeders, and, and, and oftentimes they have good luck with that. We've had, I don't know how many species that have been documented during fall, winter, maybe like, I think there's only 12 species in, in the U.S., so I think we've had maybe like eight or nine species documented in Mississippi, but the rufous hummingbird is the most common. All right. That's uh, going to wrap us up for today. Out of time for this hour. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, funded and provided in part by generous contribution from listeners. To hear today's show or previous show, you can visit creaturecomforts.mpbonline.org. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener today was Liz Gill. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest Christina Mitchell, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to stay tuned because up next, it's AutoCorrect. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts heard only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.